1: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper.
2: And I'm the second host, Aaron Mathey. How's it going, Katie? Good. You? I'm well. I'm well. We have. I like a... your
1: setup, by the way. It looks yeah. like you're in a diner, kind of.
2: Okay, a diner. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah.
1: Like a, I... in a booth, a, a booth in a oh, diner. Oh,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. I got Yeah, yeah. 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 Getting a milkshake and. Yeah. Yeah uh well that's what i'm going for now that's my new thing i'm i'm a diner guy that's that's what i'm going to reinvent myself as
1: and your new demographic yeah huge he's huge among diner guys yeah Mm -hmm.
2: well we have a really great show this week noor ericott is going to join us she is a human rights attorney and law professor and we are going to be discussing the latest israeli assault on the west bank town of janine and a lot to discuss there and as always you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com, where you get all kinds of great bonus content, including the Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness.
1: Yeah, and uh, we did, of course, take off this week uh, Monday morning, but we'll be back next Monday, so have no fear, we will be here.
2: It's hard missing Monday mornings. It's become kind of a tradition, and but you know there are ho- there are holidays in this right. country, and we have to respect them. So you know,
1: I feel I felt a little unmoored. you know it's my touchstone but the good news is it wasn't even chuck todd so we didn't miss that much
2: oh yeah okay yeah it was
1: his new replacement i mean i but he'll be back he'll be back he's not gone yet Oh
2: jeez jeez i know i know sorry
1: sorry i should i'm not ready yet i'm not ready yeah all righty so should we start with the four basic food groups
2: let's do it what do we have for democrats
1: Oh, my gosh. So for Democrats suck, well, the Biden administration has a very exciting announcement. It has nominated Elliot Abrams to be a member of the United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. So a couple things to know about Elliot Abrams. So not only did he serve as the Trump administration's special envoy to Iran and Venezuela, he was also part of Ronald Reagan's administration, and he really made a name himself for himself there as a death squad uh, defender in Central America. Now, Human Rights Watch's Ken Roth reacted to his nomination by saying Abrams, quote, most notorious public diplomacy is downplaying the 1981 El Mozote massacre of a thousand people by US trained and equipped Salvadoran military units, end quote. He also knew about Oliver North's covert military support of the Contras, and he himself encouraged foreign countries to contribute to the terrorist group. And he even pleaded guilty To withholding information from congress in 1991 so thank god that we have a president like joe biden so bipartisan that he nominates reaganite death squad defenders like elliot abrams
2: if you really need any more proof that we live under a uniparty when it comes to war this is it right here joe biden appointing a veteran republican neocon to a position about diplomacy what all this guy has done all his life is, you know, promote war. Um, Trump brought him back to basically help oversee the coup in Venezuela. Right. And that was a disaster. Um, and that's what he's done his whole career is to try to overthrow foreign governments that, that are independent of U.S. control. And, you know, his record really came out uh, when he was uh, testifying before Congress a few years ago. And Ilhan Omar. She grilled uh, him. She grilled him for all my criticisms of her for, you know, supporting policies that Elliot Abrams advocates, like, for example, proxy wars, like the one in Ukraine. She really grilled him really effectively when he came before Congress a few years ago. And actually, let's go to a brief clip just to show you who Elliot Abrams really is. In
3: 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the Iran-Kortra affair, for which you were later pardoned. By President George H. W. Bush, I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful.
4: If I can respond to that,
3: uh, um, it wasn't a question. Uh, I w- On February, that was it not was that was, an was not a question. Would- that was sure. the I. Point I reserve person. the right I'm to sorry. my time.
4: It is not. It is not right. That the was not a question. can attack on
3: February a 8th.
4: Who is not permitted to reply? That
3: that was not a question. Thank you for your participation. On February 8, 1982, you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about U.S. policy in El Salvador. In that hearing, you dismissed as communist propaganda report about the massacre of El Mozote, in which more than 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by U.S.-trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them, girls before they killed them. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so?
4: From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement.
3: Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement? That happened under our watch.
4: That is a ridiculous question, and I Yes or no. No.
3: I I will sorry, Mr. I will take that as a yes.
4: I am not going to respond to that kind of personal attack, which is not a question.
3: Yes or no. Would you support an armed faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide? if you believe they were serving U.S. interests, as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua? I am not gonna respond
4: to that question, I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real
3: questions, and so I will not reply. Whether you under your watch, a genocide will take place, and you will look the other way because American interests were being upheld, is a fair question because the American people want to know that anytime we engage a country, that we think about what our actions could be and how we believe our values are being farthered. That is my question. Will you make sure that human rights are not violated and that we uphold international and human rights?
4: I suppose there is a question in there, and the answer is that the entire thrust of American policy in Venezuela is to support the Venezuelan people's effort to restore democracy to their country. That's our policy.
3: I don't think anybody disputes that. The question I had for you is that the interest, does the interest of the United States include protecting human rights and include protecting people against genocide.
4: That is always
3: the position of the United States. Thank you. I yield back my time.
1: And as you can see from that, not only is he a disgusting person uh, in terms of human rights, but he's a petulant little bitch. <laughs> uh,
2: Anya Parampil of the Gray Zone has often compared him to Gargamel from the Smurfs.
1: Oh, there's, yeah, he does have a Gargamel. There's a strong there. Yeah, you. there is. In fact, have we ever seen them in the same room at the same time?
2: We have not seen L. Abrams and Gargamel the same there room. There you so.
1: go. Yeah.
2: Congratulations to Elliot Abrams on your nomination and to Joe Biden on your latest uh, nominee. And uh, thank you for showing us how bipartisanship truly works in Washington.
1: And this is the example 7,092 of Biden keeping the one promise he kept from his campaign, which is... Uh, nothing would fundamentally change, which he told a bunch of donors.
2: (laughs) All right. For Republicans suck, let's go to a new campaign ad from Ron DeSantis, who was trying to go after his main rival, Donald J. Trump. And his line of attack against Trump is that Trump is actually good on defending the rights of LGBTQ people. So this is the DeSantis campaign.
4: I will do... To protect our LGBTQ citizens. But Caitlin
2: Jenner were to walk into Trump Tower and want to use the bathroom, you would be
0: fine with her using any bathroom she chooses. That is correct.
1: In the future, can transgender women compete in this universe?
0: Yes.
2: Make America great again. Spike!
0: It really has shut down.
2: Drag just produced
0: some
5: of the harshest, most draconian laws that literally threaten trans existence.
2: Congratulations, Ron Sanders. Mission accomplished. You win. So for our audio audience, uh, that was just a montage from Ron DeSantis' campaign celebrating basically what a bigot he is when it comes to LGBTQ rights and attacking Trump for comments that uh, uphold LGBTQ rights. that's a really interesting line of attack that DeSantis is going for there.
1: He also has in that montage, so a bunch of headlines showing what a bigot he is, but he also has a lot of kind of semi-nude men, which is an an interesting choice. Naked from the waist up, bodybuilding type of dudes.
2: Sure. I'm not yeah. I sure mean, what
1: he was doing there. But I mean,
2: for a guy who wants to showcase uh, that he's a bigot, it's also, a, it's a, it's kind of a homoerotic.
1: It is very homoerotic. Ad. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But you know, that's, that kind of comes with the territory with people like this.
1: By the way, not to brag, but DeSantis, uh, he's really leaning into his criticism and using that as a campaign ad. So he also has a montage of people, including yours truly pointing out that he'd be a scarier president than Trump because he's a more competent administrator. So we made a montage of that. And I'm not just mentioning that because I'm in it. I'm also mentioning it because it's part of my very important analysis of this clip.
2: Yeah, well, congrats, Katie, for making it in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, what do we have for Isn't That Weird?
1: Okay, so for Isn't That Weird, let's go to the videotape. Let's hear what happened from MSNBC.
2: Secret Service is now investigating how a small bag of suspected cocaine was found in the White House. On Sunday night, employees were briefly evacuated after a white powdery substance was discovered in a small dime-sized bag. That's according to a Secret Service official. President Biden was not at the White House at the time. The D.C. Fire Department subsequently was called in to evaluate the substance, which was determined to be non-hazardous. A source familiar with the investigation said the Secret Service is now reviewing cam- camera footage and entrance logs to see who had access to the space where the suspected drugs were found.
1: Who do you think it is?
2: Well, I mean I'm sorry to make fun of his uh past because, you know, addiction is not funny. But obviously, you know, Hunter Biden has been in the White House recently, and so he's an obvious suspect, or, you know, or I shouldn't say suspect, he's an obvious person of interest. Um but then again, you, know, you can't rule out the fact that this could just be a Russian disinformation campaign as the case, obviously with hunter biden's laptop and i'm just waiting on 51 former intelligence officials to tell us that the cocaine baggie really just comes from russia
1: what if it was an actual russian person who just came in dropped off some board maybe we'll find not only cocaine maybe there's some b- borscht in there also
2: who knows? who knows another another possible person of interest is uh ukrainian president zelensky who has been rumored this is just purely
1: speculation Uh, speculation
2: i'm not asserting anything i just this is what you see on the internet which obviously can't be taken you know uh, on faith but it's out there that zelensky has been known to possibly have an issue with drugs so maybe so that those are my three top suspects russia hunter Zelensky.
1: well either way it is indeed weird is it not
2: it's definitely indeed weird (laughs) yes Yeah, so a, that's
1: why it's it's this week's isn't that weird but it could also be isn't that Russian disinformation.
2: Mhm. It could very well could be.
1: <laughs> so what do we got for isn't that terrible?
2: For isn't that terrible, let's turn to the advice pages and check out this headline from the New York Post. Dear Abby, I married a man for health insurance and now he won't leave. Man oh man, what a pickle to be in. Dear Abby, 18 years ago, I married a man so he could get health insurance and have back surgery. It was supposed to be short-lived. He fell in love with me and wouldn't leave. He's put me through hell over the years. Stage four tongue cancer left him unable to work, which I didn't have an issue with. Then he started drinking and got a DUI because I was the sole provider. It cost me around $10,000. My husband is a complete slob and doesn't care. He has a severe sleep disorder he refuses to address. Most days, he drinks at night and sleeps until two or three in the afternoon. I finally moved out, but now he's pestering me about when I'll be back. What can I do? Turn the page in Arizona. Yet another indictment of this insane healthcare system that that this poor woman has to live with this difficult spouse, all because he needed health insurance because the government didn't provide for that in this insane society
1: no good deed goes unpunished am i right
2: certainly not no
1: terrible no. she tries to help a guy out and she's the one paying the price
2: yeah What i hope abby i mean we didn't read abby's response and i i but what i hope she advised is you should advocate for single-payer health care
1: that would be amazing you know advocate for single-payer yeah and those are your four basic food groups
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify
1: Today, we are going to be talking to Nora Ericott, who is a Palestinian human rights attorney, legal scholar, and associate professor at Rutgers University. She's the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. She's also a co-founding editor of Jadalaya and an editorial committee member of the Journal of Palestine Studies.
2: And we're speaking to Nora in the aftermath of an Israeli assault on the West Bank, uh, town of Janine, one of the deadliest Israeli assaults in many years. And Noor Erekat has been a vocal advocate on this issue for a very long time, written several books, and is a expert on international human rights law, which Israel flagrantly violates every single day. So let's go to Noor Erika. Thank
1: you so much for joining. We're so excited to be talking to you.
5: Where I'm delighted to be with you, although obviously never good circumstances.
1: I know. That's that's the unfortunate part of it, obviously. We have some very disturbing stuff to talk about, but we are very grateful that you will help guide us through what's happening. So can you actually just set up what is happening in Janine right now? Sure. Well, right now,
5: what we're witnessing are Israeli troops withdrawing from the refugee camp after 48 hours of... Um, What appears to be indiscriminate uh, aerial missile strikes, bulldozing homes, trees, as well as targeting journalists, cutting off electricity and water in what the Israeli official line is that they were trying to Undermine the resistance within the Janine refugee camp. But what we understand still is that, of course, they haven't decimated that resistance. It is not decimated as it's part of um, an entire Palestinian national consciousness, one that's arisen at this particular moment uh, very methodically, but along new political lines that contravene uh, traditional ones, so that youth, um, primarily teenagers, who are organizing themselves across political factions have been taking up arms and declaring that they will resist to protect themselves against Israel's military incursions and their ongoing confiscation of Palestinian lands to expand their settlement enterprise across the West Bank. And what we're also seeing is a tremendous amount of unity between the West Bank and Gaza, very similar to what we saw in 2021, um, that also reverberates across the Palestinian citizens in Israel, uh, demonstrating again that there is a national holistic consciousness that's united against uh, Zionist settler colonization across all Palestinian lands and peoples.
1: So what you just laid out, of course, is very different from what we're hearing from uh, traditional media and legacy media. Can you go through some of the things that the media is getting wrong or omitting in its coverage of this conflict or clashes, as they often call it? Well, I think it would be great to hear what you're
5: reading in the media and then I can respond to that. I can tell you a few of the things that I've read that Uh. have just been absolutely infuriating. I've seen, for example, um, a lot uh, or at least um, I'll mention Congressman uh, Richie Torres, who is right, obviously tweet. yeah. tweeting a talking point um, that's been written for him about what this um, what this Israeli military operation is.
1: And we so actually have this. So so Richie Torres, who is a Democrat uh, congressman from New York, from the Bronx, also a notorious uh, defender of Israel and uh, pink washer, uh, had this to say about what is happening right now. The Palestinian Authority has all but abandoned Janine, leaving behind a power vacuum that has been filled by terrorists. In the past six months, these terrorists made Janine a launching pad for more than 50 shooting attacks against Israelis. Israel is responding with a counterterrorism operation aimed at surgically removing these terrorists and their terror infrastructure. There's a word for this, self-defense, which is the right of every sovereign country, including Israel. So wanted to see, you would re- respond to this on Twitter, but uh, maybe he'll listen to you here uh, in, in video form. What what What's your response to that?
5: Well, one, he really should vet the talking points that are given to him. These are stale talking points. This is not the first time Israel has entered Jenin. The fact that there are refugees in Jenin, first of all, means that Israel has yet to resolve uh, it, the Palestinian refugee conflict crisis, which is a crisis that Israel created by its establishment, that the UN responded to in 1949 with UN resolution 194 that what that re- required that Palestinians actually be returned, repatriated, Um, and rehabilitated. The UNHCR is developed, the the International Refugee Agency, is developed a year after UNRWA, the Refugee Agency for Palestinians. And I see this for the audiences who have responded with a new talking point about, oh, obviously Palestinians are harming themselves if there's a refugee camp in the Palestinian territories. Okay, understand this. There is no exception to the Palestinian refugees. Their rights are unlike and indistinct from the rights of all international refugees. Refugee status flows through many descendants and generations. It doesn't just stop at the generation that was expelled or removed. So the fact that Palestinians are still in refugee camps, one represents the fact that Israel has not abided by its international law obligations to rehabilitate, repatriate, right, or resettle. Palestinian refugees. Number two, where are they going to go outside of the refugee camp if all of their lands are under occupation? When Israel actually occupied the West Bank in 1967, it's not as if Palestinians have the right of urban planning to live wherever they want. These are dense areas that israel control controls through martial law so this talking point that somehow there's any kind of sovereignty for palestinians to build elsewhere belies the fact that the palestinian authority has no authority beyond those things like picking up trash delivering postage and policing palestinians to protect israeli settlers okay so putting that aside What about this idea about what Janine Refugee Camp is and how they describe it as an operation for self-defense? Janine, like several other parts of the West Bank, is a Palestinian city that came under Palestinian civilian and security control under the 1993 also Accords, which, which ushered an autonomy framework and created reservations or Bantustans for Palestinians where they don't exercise any kind of meaningful sovereignty. This is a derivative sovereignty. This is autonomous control, but they're in enclaves disconnected from one another, which is the point so that Israel can uh, separate Palestinians from one another, undermine their national cohesion in order to further confiscate their lands, to remove them and to settle Israeli settlers in their place. These Palestinians who have organized themselves in the lion's den, or in the Janine Brigade, as we've seen in the Janine Brigade, are Palestinian youth who are not organized uh, from the top down by any kind of official Palestinian government, but who are organizing themselves because no one is protecting Palestinians. The Israeli government, together with the Israeli army, together with the Israeli settlers who are armed to the teeth, whom no one holds to account, not, not not civilian, military or government, no one in the international community is holding to, to account, has been attacking Palestinians relentlessly in their homes and what have been described as pogroms. They have been entering their homes, burning cars, burning homes, in and two weeks ago, they entered and also committed a similar, what people are calling programs, what Palestinians refer to as ongoing Nakba, and included a Palestinian state assembly member from Illinois, and absolutely no one held them to account. Who protects these Palestinians? And if everybody in the world has a right to self-defense, how is it that suddenly, Palestinians do not have the right to organize themselves to pick up arms, and mind you, these are guns against aerial warships, against bulldozers, against tanks, right? Against bombs, and Palestinian youth are organizing themselves with IEDs um, as well as 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 handguns in order to protect themselves. And this is precisely when the Israeli military is entering their homes to protecting themselves against them. There's, there's, There's no equivocation here. There's no equivocation here. The international community has left Palestinians to themselves when in fact, they should be the ones protecting them. And so when Richie Torres talks about that they're dismantling a terror cell, actually what they're doing is furthering Native elimination in order to remove these Palestinians from their homes, to expand their settlement enterprise on Palestinian lands under the veneer of self-defense so that the international community shrugs its shoulders and thinks that this is just two people not getting along, is chewing completely the imbalance of power between the only nuclear power in the Middle East and a stateless population people without even an airport.
2: There is an Israeli uh, military spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, and this is from the New York Times. Hecht said the goal of the Israeli operation on Janine was, quote, to break the safe haven mindset of the refugee camp. What do you think he means by that, a safe haven mindset? And how is that possibly a legitimate reason to bombard a civilian population based on a, a mindset?
5: So I think you know, for the he's talking to an international community that that he's using the word safe haven as this to say the same the same images that they use in order to conjure a very racial colonial trope, right? The same thing when they say wasp's net, or when they right. say they want to drain the swamp, right? These are all images that are, mo- uh, are are making us think of Palestinians as akin to insects or rodents or something that's unwanted, right? Even if they're not saying that, those are the images that they're conjuring. The idea that this is a redundant population um, that needs to be eliminated as opposed to a native people that is living on their land. So that's first of all. Second of all, the there is what he's basically saying is that no one is safe. What's safe haven? What Palestinians are safe? What Palestinians are safe? Nowhere are they safe. Not where they're barricaded um, in the 365 square kilometer of the Gaza Strip by land siege and naval blockade. Not um, in the West Bank, where at any given moment, there, there is a siege of a particular place like there was right now in, in the Janine refugee camp, which is a half square kilometer, or as there was in Jericho uh, earlier this summer when they besieged the city and no one can get in or get, get out, or as they do in Hizma, where they besiege uh, the village so that anybody everybody has to show ideas to get in and to get out. But when they attack with warplanes, and tanks and they do so indiscriminately and they remove people it's a message to palestinians that you are not safe anywhere that unless you completely surrender we will terrorize you with the you know as the 11th most significant military power in the world with the backing of global superpower and the rest of the international community is going to blame you yeah as we decimate your population you are not safe. that is what he's saying it's the same thing that they said also if you recall in the 2006 israeli invasion of lebanon right when they basically created the Dahi doctrine which is the suburban neighborhood of beirut where a number of hezbollah um, operatives uh, are residents Right. And they said, we'll decimate the entire city. I mean, they're basically saying we're going to, we're going to use war crimes as a military tactic. That's lit, that, that's like ipso facto a war crime to say that we're going to destroy the entire city indiscriminately, whoever it may, may be in it in order to deter, to deter the, the Hezbollah or anybody else from fighting back. And so here they're doing the same thing. We'll terrorize the entire civilian population in order to deter anybody from wanting to participate and to to punish um, indiscriminately, to make make sure that you understand you can't defeat us. That's the message that they're sending. Um, And as we see, they did this 20 years ago, 21 years ago, in 2002, uh, in the invasion and the siege of Jenin. And that's not true. Palestinians do not surrender. New generations rise up knowing full well, not just cognitively and intelligently, what their situation is, but the trauma that lives in their bodies, their family members who are affected, their neighbors who were killed, the homes that 80% of homes that were destroyed around them that they need to rebuild. This is not a people that watches this and says, yeah, it makes sense, we should just give up and all die. Israel's really going to be a benevolent occupier. We'll fight, we'll fight will fight, will die fighting for our freedom, which is, yes, Palestinians are incredibly brave, my God, so brave, so resilient, but any people would do the same thing and we would support them as they fought for their freedom.
1: Well, speaking of that, comment you just made about any people, how we would support any people doing this if they weren't Palestinian. This is a good side by side of two different tweets. So we have Aviva Klampas, who was a um, head of speech writing at the Israeli mission to the UN. She tweets, he said that Israel found a bomb making factory in Jenin. Such a bummer that Israelis refused to get murdered. And she's responding to a tweet that says, unfortunately, Israeli occupation forces located an explosive laboratory in Janine. Okay, so then let's see the next image. This is from the same person, Aviva Klampas. Civilians in Kyiv are arming themselves and preparing Molotov cocktails. Outnumbered and outgunned, they aren't giving up. Ukrainians have guts. So, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, this juxtaposition.
5: I mean, it's it's a it's a great it's a, a real time overview of how colonialism and imperialism works. These are not principles that are guiding uh, people's responses and reactions. This is precisely a very politicized view of who people think deserve to live and who people think uh, can be let left to die. And as far as Aviva is concerned, but as far as a lot of Western nations are concerned, racism has conditioned them to accept Palestinian death. We have barely been able to get above right to to even get above water where we're we're actually speaking for ourselves and being heard and in fact in this latest not not even recently because of the effect of 2021 which was so robust during the intifada or you know others have called it the hebbe Um, an uprising or an outburst that Palestinians, were Palestinians successfully ushered a paradigm shift and ushered an understanding of Israel as an aggressor and a settler colonial power that was following the release of several reports that found that Israel oversees an apartheid regime. What we've been experiencing since 2021 has been a counter revolution by the establishment that has now made any act of criticism against Israel as anti-Semitic, that has made any act of Palestinian protest a form of anti-Semitism. And so this, it's, it's this counter-revolution that we've been experiencing that has placed us in a moment we're doing during the uprisings where thousands and thousands of Israelis were protesting against the religious fascist government right that has declared that they have civilian oversight over the occupied territories meaning that there is not even a veneer that there's a temporary military occupation but that they are planning on annexing these lands in in you know broad daylight right in contravention of the prohibition of the acquisition of territory by force right that in this precise moment there are no Palestinian voices there, nobody is asking Palestinians, what do you think of these Israeli, mass Israeli protests against a fascist religious government? The most fascist that you as Palestinians who have had to suffer from them have ever had to see. There has not been, no one has commented on that or the fact that what is the contradiction of democracy protests where apartheid continues to exist? And so now we're seeing the situation, seeing it taken to its logical end where even those, those thousands and thousands who are protesting against their fascist Israeli government think that this is completely acceptable and believe that somehow these teenagers that are organizing themselves are actually threatening power. And in fact, Israel is right to be threatened because the fact that Palestinians refuse to disappear is the existential threat, is the existential threat. It's not Molotov cocktails or IEDs or armed Palestinians, but it's the fact that Palestinians remain knowing themselves as a singular nation. It's the fact that Palestinians pass on their traditions, their folklore, their language, their history from generation to generation. It's the fact that Palestinians have united themselves across violent geographic and juridical demarcations that are meant to separate us and refuse to disappear, understanding that we are a people that have a land, in the words of Mahmoud Darwish, worth living upon, and that is the existential threat that we pose. That is why we're seeing that as part of the counter-revolution, because Israel can't win this battle in the streets, except for this propaganda of, of you know scaring people with with images. You know they, they'll never show you Palestinians, right? But these these fabricated images and this propaganda. And instead of even trying to win this this battle in the streets, they've gone from the top down to pass anti-BDS bills so that we can't even protest, right? They want us to just use, you know, the folks that say, if only you would protest nonviolently. Right. What the hell is BDS? What were the Gaza flotillas? What was the Gaza March of Return? What is Palestinian Sumud when they stay on their lands? All of that is nonviolent. You recognize none of it. And all of it is registered as an existential threat. Instead, they passed the anti-BDS bills to make it impossible to mobilize our um, allies alongside, with us, as well as the IRA definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition that characterizes any criticism of Israel or anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. They're going to make illegal from the top down what people believe from the bottom up. They're creating a volcano. Their time is short, it's limited, and everything that they're doing, everything that they're doing will backfire and will only create more robust, more dedicated generations of Palestinians who will resist and fight.
2: I wanna ask you about uh, another way propaganda works, which is just to constantly whitewash history and use that to blame Palestinians for everything. So from Israel's founding, Palestinians are, are falsely accused of trying to uh, wipe out Israel. And uh, it's like there's this myth that all these Palestinian refugees just fled their homes because they wanted to let right. the invading Arab armies wipe out Jews. We know that's a lie. There was an ethnic cleansing campaign. And, and you go on and on every single historical event. 20 years ago, when Israel was crushing the Antifada, Palestinian leaders were constantly accused of, it's their fault because they rejected this very generous Israeli peace off- offer that offered them all of the West Bank, everything they wanted. And Bill Clinton at the time gave fodder to that when he blamed Yasser Arafat for mm-hmm. rejecting uh, Israeli peace offers. Offers, And at the time, you, know, you couldn't say in the New York Times and Washington Post, the truth, which is that actually Israel offered Palestinians nothing. And already what Palestinians were accepting was a huge compromise because, they were willing to accept a state within the 67 borders, which means accepting basically the expulsions of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians back in 1948. Anyway, now we have recently this. I want to show you this. This is like a... So recently some Israeli uh, archives were declassified and they they show this. This is a headline from Middle East Monitor. Israel, not Arafat, scuppered Clinton-led peace deal. So Clinton was publicly blaming Arafat for rejecting the Israeli offer at Camp David in July 2000. And based on that, when Israel was carrying out atrocities in places like Janine 20 years ago, Palestinians were blamed. But now we know from the Israeli archives that have just been released that actually Israel, it was Israel that didn't uh, offer Palestinians basically anything. And they even rejected the parameters that Clinton was putting out. But of course, we get this 20 years later when the damage has been done. So I'm wondering if you could just comment on that episode and this dynamic where constantly we get the truth. But long after all the damage has been done and so much bloodshed is spilled uh, as a
1: result. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. So Nora wanted to add something to our conversation but was unable to because she was traveling. So we're going to read something that she uh, sent us. The context for Israel's military operation was twofold. Firstly, because Janine's resistance last month caught Israel's military off guard pinning in a unit that required aerial gunships, the first to be used by Israel in 20 years to get the combat unit out.
2: And the second point that Nora wanted to make is that Israel is preparing for annexing the West Bank and is launching military campaigns to prepare the groundwork for that. This is an intensification of their ongoing Nakba of removing Palestinians to replace them with Israeli settlers. So this is the context in which this attack on Janine took place. Janine, long a center of Palestinian armed resistance in the occupied West Bank. And so Israel, unable to uh, you know, crush the Palestinian spirit, is going after really this the center of Palestinian resistance and trying to crush it. But as we saw, despite all the bloodshed, they couldn't and you know, Janine resisted. I believe at least one Israeli soldier was killed in this operation and we'll see how this unfolds. And unfortunately, this is not the last time we'll be speaking about a, a, a tragedy, uh, a massacre in the occupied territories because this is how this Israeli occupying power operates. And thank you so much to Noura Erekat for joining us. For more, you can uh, find her work at jadalia.com, Also her website, noorericot.com. And we will link to that in the notes for this episode.
1: Bye everyone. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com/usefulidiots for clips, live streams and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag #usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10am for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.